Religion and Work There is an unbreakable link between our concept of God, our view of ourselves, and how we act in creation. This is because human beings are integral beings and religious by nature. There have been numerous attempts to account for human religious sensibility. Modernist philosophy tried to account for the religious nature of man in terms of the contrast between man and the cosmos he inhabits, an immense realm inspiring him with awe and fear. Religions, they claim, developed as a defense mechanism in which many unseen forces were posited and then ritually placated as a way of trying to gain some kind of control. This is a typically secular account of religion that implies modern technological man has outgrown such things. However, the ongoing prevalence of all kinds of belief systems about the world in our own culture undermines this simplistic account. It is notoriously difficult to define religion to the satisfaction of everyone. The Latin word religio and religere probably take us to its root meanings of reverence and to tie, to bind. The core idea here is a basic and fundamental tie that binds people together to get them growing in the same direction, an agricultural metaphor. Put another way, religion concerns the spiritual root of existence, constituting the ground of unity for human life and society. Biblically speaking, fallen human beings are restless creatures because we somehow transcend the world in which we exist, what C.S. Lewis through the devil screw tape called spiritual amphibians. Though we are surely created for this world, living as creatures in temporal reality, we are made for fellowship with the eternal God. And so we find that eternity is in our hearts. It's for this reason St. Augustine famously prayed to God, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. So from a Christian standpoint, humans are essentially and inescapably religious beings because of the relationship we each sustain to God, our creator. Religion is therefore much more than the practice of this or that faith. Various faiths, the world religions as they are called, are the cultic expression of certain religious convictions. But religion itself is an all-encompassing reality that may or may not be connected to cultic rites and liturgy. From the biblical standpoint, all of life is religion, as we either worship and serve the living God in all aspects of life, or because of the fall of man, are turned toward the worship of some aspect of creation, that is the honor of surrogate gods, which scripture calls idolatry. 
This idolatry may well take on an ideological character where one or more aspects of creation are absolutized or deified and made the root of all meaning and the foundation of all explanations. For example, in ideologies like communism, the community is absolutized. In rationalism, the mind. In individualism, the individual. In romanticism, the feeling aspect of life. In economism, the economical aspect of creation. In Darwinism, the biotic aspect. In materialism, the physical aspect, and so on. The many isms in Western thought are the surrogate gods of the modern world. In its broadest sense then, religion, be it faithful or rebellious, is man's answer, his response to God's word. It is our varied response as creatures to our creator. Although the provenance of the term religion implies tying and binding together, unity is certainly not the first thing people tend to think of when religion is discussed in our time. In fact, the ties that bind have in many ways been severed from modern culture. In the Western world, after the Reformation and following the religious wars of the 16th and 17th centuries, a sense of religious unity in Christendom was increasingly broken at the societal level. Now, partly in view of these divisions, a solution to this problem was seized upon during the so-called Enlightenment. It was during this period that a supposedly religiously neutral secular state was born, which invoked a public, private, secular, sacred separation of life in the name of achieving unity and tolerance for civil society. Now, of course, based on what we have noted about the true character of religion, it's basically impossible for anyone who exercises office in political and civic life to be free from religious conviction, both in terms of their posture towards God and in terms of what they believe is true or false concerning reality. For example, what is the meaning of life, the purpose of life, or what should be promoted and enforced as good and right and just in society by political authority. All such ideas about the world are shaped by acknowledged or unacknowledged religious presuppositions. In other words, by a worldview. However, the religiously motivated move of artificially creating a strict, sacred, secular, private, public divide meant that secularism essentially replaced Christianity as the new public religion of the West, the new religion of state, and the ostensible glue of Western society. By affirming religious relativism and a mantra that all faiths are equal, whilst declaring itself non-religious, 
Secularism brilliantly enthroned itself as the ultimate religious principle. Our culture thus invokes a false dualism that is meant to separate faith from the affairs of secular society, but which in fact is designed only to de-privilege Christianity and protect the religious assumptions of secularism. Flowing out of the Enlightenment then, the Christian teaching regarding God as the giver of law, the source of truth and meaning for all of life in every aspect, has been steadily replaced by the idea of an ever-expanding autonomy for human affairs. Now, at the same time, we see spirituality everywhere in Western society in the form of Eastern religious practices. The difference is that these religions flourish, as far as Western people are concerned, within the rubric of the assumptions of religious secularism, which is to say they flourish within a secular interpretation of the nature of things, which has opened up the space for these religions to be promoted and these spiritualities to be widely practiced. This new context is what distinguishes today's pagan secularism from the paganism of the past. Remember also that most non-Christian religion is essentially a form of atheism because they do not posit an infinite personal God who is stationed outside the cosmos and who governs history. Uh, what Peter Jones has memorably termed twoism. As a consequence, Eastern religions, Onist religions, do not present a challenge to the secular claim of human autonomy. Indeed, they simply reinforce it. The question that remains for us is, how can we respond to the lie of pagan secularism? Van Houten has argued, and I quote, modern society is increasingly displaying the characteristics of the oldest religion that has existed, namely paganism. It appears in the guise of secularism. First then, it's important to note that we should not say we are a post-Christian people. We cannot fully undo the profound changes that the influence of the gospel has had upon the West. So our secular paganism is different from our pre-Christian paganism. What we can say is that we are increasingly non-Christian. That said, there is no doubt that today's pagan secularism is a severe crisis for Western Christianity because of its overt rejection of the gospel, making its present condition worse than the former. Secularism's invasion of the church in the form of rationalistic modernism in the 20th century decimated the mainline churches as revelation was required to submit to man's reason. In its postmodern or late modern outfit, it is now found deep inside the walls of contemporary evangelicalism, where the authority of scripture, the doctrine of God and creation, and the scriptural view of human identity and sexuality are under a serious assault. 
And in the face of what appears to be the colossus of a growing neo-pagan secular state religion, we are confronted with the grave temptation to various forms of escapism and to a despairing pessimism about the Christian gospel and our life in the world. The question becomes, what are we to do? I think the first critical thing we must do is resolutely reject the relativism of secularism based on its denial of the truth in Christ. Secular relativism is obviously self-refuting because it clearly has absolute intent to control the whole playing field. We must expose secularism's self-deception and confront our culture with biblical truth. Secondly, the scriptures affirm three critical and foundational realities that confront all people. The first is the reality of the triune God. Second, his creation. And third, his law word for creation, the ordinances which give direction to the totality of created reality and cannot be finally overturned by man's self-creating illusions. In this biblical view, creation is meaning because it is totally dependent at all times and in every part on the powerful word of God, which governs it and relates each part to every other aspect in terms of his design and purpose. As such, no resting point, no final explanation can be found within creation itself. In part and in whole, the cosmos points us back to God as the creator. Consequently, life is meaningful because creation is meaning. By contrast, the gods of secular man are impersonal things, aspects of creation itself, which are elevated and exaggerated as though they can replace God as the source of all explanation, the ground of meaning, and as the origin of all things. This exaggeration leads to doctrines like materialism, subjectivism, and various other isms. This move always distorts reality and steadily destroys meaning by reducing one aspect of a dependent creation to another. When man elevates himself and his thought to the status of God as a self-created lawgiver, he lives a lie and is constantly confronted with the absurdity and meaninglessness to which his claim reduces him. As such, secular man's rejection of God's law is self-refuting, and that self-refuting character must be exposed. Whenever man makes an idol, he begins to resemble the idol he has given his heart to. He then manufactures or manipulates social structures in terms of what he thinks a human being should look like after the image of his counterfeit God. We must affirm that Christ is the image of the invisible God and that we are being conformed to his image. 
And it's this fact that brings us to the question that fills most of our adult lives, the matter of work. There is a significant connection between our work and our worship. Since the very beginning, man was called to cultivate God's creation into a godly civilization. This involved work, and only work done in obedience to God can bring blessing, while work done in rebellion reaps futility and frustration. It is legitimate to view the Garden of Eden as the first civilizational pilot project. Human beings were made in innocence and whilst without sin, were not mature. Our first parents were placed in the garden as priest kings in God's cosmic temple, called to cultivate creation and turn it into God's fruitful kingdom. Now we know from scripture that Eden was a fertile region. It was rich in natural resources, but it would be a mistake to assume that it was a ready-made idyllic setting complete with pathways and ornamental gardens, gazebos and trimmed hedges. The fact that Eden required cultivation meant work. Adam's task was to develop the resources of the earth with the help of his wife, to till and prune the garden, and of course, classify the animals. In short, to care for and steward the creation as God's image bearer. Moreover, we should not forget that Adam and Eve were made untrained and weren't given a box of tools by Black and Decker to get them going. Being in an unfallen condition, their minds and bodies were doubtless much more capable than ours. And so they were able to accomplish the task God had assigned them with great alacrity. Immediately then in Eden, Adam would have faced problems and challenges. The Edenic region contained all manner of wild animals that could quickly reduce fruit trees and vegetables to nothing. So there was a sense of urgency to his task, the price of food being constant vigilance. Not only so, but he was also naked and without an abode at a time when a heavy dew watered the earth nightly. He thus would have needed to construct a shelter of some sort if he were to stay on the right side of his wife. The point being, Adam's life immediately involved real work, religious work, tying, binding, and cultivating. This was the liturgy, the public work of the garden. Tests of resourcefulness, invention and creativity were necessary so that man might use and develop his ability and calling to exercise dominion. To obey God and walk with God in his calling was what constituted holiness, to be set apart for God's purpose. In an important sense then, human beings were called to develop the earth to create all kinds of wealth and riches that lay hidden and undeveloped in creation. This development was not and is not easy. There are three ways by which wealth can be built. Hard work, 
inheritance or theft. Now, when we consider Adam and Eve, we notice that they inherited a magnificent estate from God himself. And so they were heirs. If what they inherited though was to be improved, grow and flourish, they had to work with their hands, with their minds to make tools, fencing, shelter, and so forth. It's important that we notice as well that godly work is productive work. Theft has never been part of God's purpose for creation. Yet we see today that in sinful man, theft has become the most popular means of wealth acquisition from petty theft to grand government schemes for expropriation of wealth for redistribution. The essential premise behind all theft is entitlement. As such, theft at root is the avoidance of work, which was man's calling. It is a rejection of a life of holiness. So then, God's legitimate and intended means for wealth creation for our first parents were inheritance and work. God had provided all the ingredients, but he made work mandatory even in the pre-fallen world. Every Christian should remember this as a critical scriptural principle. In fact, it is behind Paul's injunction that if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. Since the original family, the married pair of Adam and Eve were given an inheritance and called to work as God's stewards, there is obviously a deep connection between the present assault on the creational structures of marriage and family and the attack on wealth, productivity and inheritance. The family is the God-ordained foundational social and economic unit, and revolution against God's order inevitably involves a sustained attack against both as involved in each other. All forms of Marxist and neo-Marxist critiques of culture involve this foundational assault on God's creational order in support of theft over inheritance and hard work, with the family depicted as the center of evil and economic oppression. However, man cannot, by his own fiat word and political planning, speak wealth into being or bypass hard work or inheritance. Such attempts lead only to self-destruction, oppression, theft, and murder, as the history of revolutions reveal. Of course, we don't know how long Adam and Eve were in the garden prior to the temptation, but the fact that work was part of the deal from the beginning perhaps helps us to understand why they were susceptible to the nature of the temptation. Perhaps there was a shortcut to wisdom, wealth, satisfaction, and power without work after all, a secret key in the autonomous definition of good and evil with man's word replacing God's. Yet the reality from the beginning of time has been the same, both before and after the fall. Creational reality governs who we are as men and women 
whether we accept it or not. If we live in rebellion against God's word revelation, we do not bring blessing, but only ruin on ourselves and our environment. Indeed, even if fallen man succeeds in his work, it is accompanied by deep frustration and a sense of futility when not carried out in terms of God's dominion calling to worship and to serve. <laughs>